that she, she always told me I was adopted, but she yes. never told me that I was her biological child. And in That's fact, a, she yeah. never told her her husband oh. or her mother. She really didn't tell anybody. I think she was both ashamed or she and she was very fearful of retribution that she would yeah. she was a professor. She was a very, very good teacher. And um you know, such a, a bright, beautiful, engaging human being. And um, she was also felt that the emotional attachments that she had with my father were um, that she almost never could find that kind of love again. Welcome to the Persistence You podcast with Lisbeth. And that's you as in university. But we're much more of a community here. I'm your host, Lisbeth Meredith, author, speaker, and online teacher. Each week, I'll be delivering stories from amazing survivors and strivers, all threaded together with a dose of persistence. So glad you're listening. Well, it is August the 8th, almost the 9th, probably going to be the 9th by the time that I get the podcast up today. But it was recorded a couple of months or more ago. So just keep that in mind as ever. And I'm just, you can probably hear the dryer in the background. I'm trying to get ready as fast as possible, get my contract work done, get the podcast up so I can go pick up my adorable daughter from the airport and take off on a mom-daughter trip. And she came here because it's my birthday this week. And I happened to make a decision at some point that it would be a good idea to publish a book a year on my birthday. So Grounded in Grit, Turn Your Challenges into Superpowers is available for pre-order. Check the show notes and will be out in uh, both print availability and ebook now for pre-order and audiobook a little later. I would be stressed about it, but I just realized there's no point in it. Um, it's been a process and I feel like each time I publish, I will get better just like everything else that we do. So I'm sure some details will be falling to pieces, but I will get back to them. And main thing is it's good to have family and just great to hang out here with you. I thought my guest, Tina Davidson, when I recorded, was just so amazing. Her life story is anything but ordinary. And I love that I have first classical musician and a great storyteller. So I hope you enjoy it. Hope you're enjoying the end of your summer as much as I am. And I wish you all the best this week as you go through your own days. Thanks so much to my patrons and to everyone who reaches out at lameredith.com. And you're always, always invited to sign up for my email. My email list is typically the first to learn new developments about public speaking or what's going on in my writing world and some other things. And that noise was my cat jumping out of a box. Um, anyhow, all right, I better get this posted. Take good care and I will see you next time.
just so you know, uh, I have guest Tina Davidson that will be with us in just a little bit. She is a musical composer, a, mu- a musician all the way, and is the author of Let Your Heart Be Broken. And I love that title by Tina Davidson. And I'll tell you a little bit more about her in just a second. Thank you so much to my patrons and those who've supported me on Buy Me a Cup of Coffee. It's helped to have the podcast on some months almost pay for itself. It's, it's such a gift. And it really helps when you like a an episode and you share it with a friend. That all makes a huge difference. So big, big, big thank you. On Patreon, of course, if you become a member for $2 or $5 a month, you get access to uh, workshops that will help improve your own life in addition to just having that great feeling of being a supporter of the podcast and or my writing. Speaking of, I may have said this recently, but I just got my trademark for Persisters Press, my imprint, as well as... um, Let's see, I sent off my money for the copyright and the formatting is nearly finished. I'm having my cover redone for the book. And by August 11th, Grounded in Grit, Turn Your Challenges into Superpowers will be published unless there is some unforeseen problem. I'm counting on there not being. Speaking of unforeseen problems, it's so funny, but today I was recording with a different guest. I try only to record one or two episodes a week, always on a Monday because I do so many other things to keep the lights on. And also I used to record more episodes, but I found I wasn't listening to my guests and I just wanted to get the interview over with in my earlier episodes because I was so worried something would go wrong and or there were so many other people in the queue waiting to have their episode recorded. And it was just miserable. So I've just reached a really comfortable pace of maybe a couple of interviews a week with some weeks of not recording. And so far, mostly people are pitching me to be on the podcast through Podmatch. But sometimes I will reach out if it makes sense. My podcast guest today and I were talking about the origins of Persistence U. And I think one of the things that I am known for being a doer, so I will jump into something before I even know what my why always is. That's sometimes good and sometimes bad. I get a lot of things done, and sometimes I jump into the wrong things. So good and bad on that. So when I started the podcast, I knew I wanted to create community at Persistence U. Also, I want to create space for people to talk about challenging times that they've been through and how they attended to those times rather than got over them or put the past behind them, which does not work very well. I am a real non-fan of positive, no, that's not true. I like positive psychology, but toxic positive psychology or toxic positivity really minimizes our experiences and tells us to have a positive mindset no matter what you're going through and to sort of compartmentalize so that we don't burden others with our problems. And I feel like that is the worst thing we can do for long-term healing. So I enjoy very much hearing podcast guests talk about challenging times, times that broke them and what they gained from it and what, you know, what their life is like now. 
and sometimes who they've inspired since, who's also been going through something similar. So I'm really excited to hear from the author of this book, Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. How exciting is that? So anyway, I wanted to just read you Tina's description because it's probably the best introduction I could give you from her. Tina Davidson, our guest today, is a three and a half, was three and a half, and she was visited from her foster home in Sweden by a visiting American professor. Soon, she's the oldest of five children living with her mother and stepfather in Turkey, Germany, and Israel. She studies music and becomes a prolific pianist and composer, but something about her birth remains unnamed and hidden. When she returns to Sweden, she contacts the Swedish adoption agency. Come, says the voice on the phone. I have information for you. In Let Your Heart Be Broken, Tina Davidson juxtaposes memories, journal entries, and insight into the life of an artist and a mother at work. Along the way, Davidson meets Ernest Hemingway and Carl Sandburg, survives an attack by nomads in Turkey, and learns her birth father is a world-famous scientist. And throughout, there is a thread of music, an ebb and a crescendo of a journey out of the past into the present through darkness and into the light. So hopefully you will love this interview like I think that you will. Thanks for everything. And I hope you're having a fabulous week. And if you're not, I hope that you don't feel bad about not having a fabulous week because we all go through good times and dark seasons and... I just want people to feel like we can talk about all of it. And I hope you're getting that from this podcast. Thanks so much. Let me put this on pause. Pause. Tina Davidson, I am so very grateful to have you as my guest today on Persistence U. Uh, thank you so much. I'm like so delighted. Yeah. Well, it's very exciting. And I don't normally do this, but your book description was so compelling that I just already read it to the listeners or the viewers, depending on if they're on YouTube. But I just, I would love to hear a little bit of the backstory of how you started to write the book. And the title of the book is especially compelling to me. It's just beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I have to say that um, I started to write this book about 10 years and ago, and I'm a, a classical composer. I've been writing music for 45 years, but I really felt 10 years ago, like I wanted to pull a lot of ends together. Okay. I wanted an opportunity to write about music, which is something I absolutely love. I love being a composer. I love music, but I wanted to also talk about my artistic process as a composer and sort of allow it to get in the vernacular. So we're not talking about chords and musical theory. We're just talking about how I come across pieces, how I compose, what how important it is to me and how it is part of the way I grow myself emotionally, how I put myself into the music at that moment. And as I write it, um, it almost teaches me something about me that I can carry forward. So this book, Let Your Heart Be Broken, comes from a moment when, I don't know when it was, maybe in the late 80s, it was during the AIDS epidemic. And I think we forget 
how terrified we were when friends were dying of AIDS and we didn't know, you know, we had not actually been able to test the blood supply yet. You know, there was always the worry that if you got a blood transfusion and anytime AIDS came up, it was a, it was a dire prognosis. There was nothing good about that. We didn't have those pills, those, uh, so I was at the Open Center at a two-day seminar with Stephen Levine, who is an amazing poet and author, and he wrote a lot of books about death and dying and how you have this time where you really hold on to life and are really present with it. And wouldn't it be wonderful if you were more present with, you know, before? <laughs> you right. <laughs> so he he's asked, um, what is the meaning of life? And he relaxes back into his chair. This is at the beginning of my book. And he says, I'm asked that all the time, he replies. And I really don't know. He pauses, looking to the side and turned back, smiling. But I think the meaning of life is to let your heart be broken. And then I write. The heart, the round sphere of your being, let your heart be broken, allow, expect, look forward to the life you have so carefully protected and cared for, broken, cracked, rent in two, heartbreakingly, your heart breaks, and in the two halves rocking on the table is revealed rich earth, moist, dark soil, ready for a new life to begin. Beautiful. So that's sort of what the journey of this book is, that out of past difficulties and trauma and uh, a childhood and a young adulthood of of depressions, um, just being able to walk into that brokenheartedness, you know, not resisting it or burying it or putting it to the side or giving it to someone else. Would you get it? <laughs> it's always tempting. <laughs> it's always tempting. And it's something that sometimes you can do for, with a good friend. You say, well, could you date this? And they'll go, hmm. But um, just that you meet this brokenheartedness, which we all experience. It's part of life, brokenheartedness. And, and walk through it. And that on the other side is this ability to sort of transform yourself again, to, to reemerge never as maybe beautiful as you were before you had your heart broken, but a new version of yourself that is thoughtful and, and maybe more compassionate and empathetic and um, and learning and growing. And then you break your heart again. And yeah, <laughs> right. you know, it doesn't stop happening. It's something that just continues to happen as we go through life. It's not a one and done. <laughs> it's not, you know, and a lot of times trauma, I have a friend who says, oh yeah, trauma change, changes clothing and get it back and gets back in line. You know, I have a, <laughs> maybe you didn't notice me. <laughs> oh my, that yeah, is it, fabulous. Yeah, and that's, that is part of life's gift or life's passage. It just, it just is, it's not, you know, it's not intentionally mean to you. It's just right. what happens. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, what did happen when we talked about you you having a call to the adoption agency that uh, in Sweden when you were an adult? And well, then- I, yes, I was adopted when I was three and a half. I lived in this wonderful family, the Elmstow family, and I was adopted and brought to America when I was three and a half. And uh, she married and had four more children. So I was the oldest of five. And when I was 21, I was back in Sweden, actually babysitting a a daughter of a family friend. 
And um, <clears throat> I decided to call the adoption agency and they told me to come down. And I always imagined that I was this Swede. Now, my hair is no longer black, but it used to be very, very black. And I noticed that all Swedes that I could see were blonde and blue eyed. And I thought, well, well, you know, you can always have an exception. <laughs> so she's sitting there reading a letter. And finally, she turns to me and she said, your adopted mother is actually your biological mother. And that was the twist. And what I had to learn, there's so many lessons to learn. You know, I had lived with this concept of myself being adopted, you know, always beloved, always, you know, part of the family, but always knowing that I really wasn't, you know, that those relatives or the, the family history really wasn't my family history. And I had, uh, and I knew that my mother was very uncomfortable talking about it. So we never discussed it. And um, so I had created this whole life around this word and to have that word sort of cut out of your existence, you know, like, oh, that's not you anymore. Took me years to unravel. And my mother was very resistant to me talking about it. I think, you know, I was an illegitimate child in the 50s. It was very, very difficult for women. And she did the smart thing. She brought me back to America as in under this protection. But, you know, there's a difference between privacy and secrets, especially right. secrets that are about other people. And this secret was hurtful to me. Um, and uh, it, it, it was a lot to, to unpack and to think about and to reintegrate myself. Um, so I didn't really do any work on it until I was um, in my 30s and had um, a newborn. And I'm looking at this beautiful child and she's nursing and you were all one. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you have some baggage. And if you don't take care of your baggage, you are just going to pass it off to your daughter and she will have to deal with it. You will communicate it in, you know, in anger, in, I don't know, in some sort of way, sort of the way my mother did to me, you know, and she, my daughter was really my great opportunity. And I just, had to get down to work and really work hard. Um, I think underneath all of that became clear to me that the family I had lived with for three and a half years was my family. And when I left, it was like they died in a car accident. They were gone. Right. And that I was carrying a lot of that grief. And I really started to express it. I, I was so surprised. I never would have thought that I would be crying as much as I did, you know, just weeping, just feeling such a sense of loss. Um, but I did go back. I went back when my daughter was three and a half, just my age, and I, I visited with the family for a week. And then uh, when my daughter was about 10, I think we went and uh, lived in Sweden for about uh, four weeks. Oh, I love that. Yeah, to really... Um, sort of tie all of this together for myself. And I really felt it was kind of the, the, the land of my birth, you know, that I had yes. a kind of physical connection to Sweden. Um, and um, that was really important for me to integrate into my uh, self. That is beautiful. So, 
so your your mother at the time that she had you, it sounds like she did what she needed to do to kind of cover something that was unacceptable then. And so you ended up with a beautiful family and then she quote unquote adopted you, but never told you that she She always told me I was adopted, but she never told me that I was her biological child. And in fact, she never told her, her husband or her mother. She really didn't tell anybody. I think she was both ashamed or she, and she was very fearful of retribution that she would, she was a professor. She was a very, very good teacher. And, um, you know, such a, a bright, beautiful, engaging human being. And um, she was also felt that the emotional attachments that she had with my father were um, that she almost never could find that kind of love again, mm-hmm. that kind of disaster. So, I mean, I think she also romanticized it uh, to a point where it became um, toxic. You know, it kept her back. Right. Uh, and so when I said, you know, I wanted to tell my siblings didn't know. And she, I said, I want, oh, no, 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 you can't tell anybody. And then, uh, you know, finally, you know, I had to negotiate that. And then when um, I was in my 30s and I was getting married, uh, she wanted to have separate weddings, one for her side of the family, the bride's side of the family, and one for for my my biological side of the family. Uh, she didn't want to appear to them as the fallen woman. And I think it's two things. It's part of the legacy of discrimination against women and Mm -hmm. evaluating women and condemning women having children out of wedlock. You know, the women carry the the onus of that. Um, And it's also the destructiveness of secrets. Mm -hmm. That if you have a secret in your life, I'm not talking about privacy, but a secret that it it impinges on other people. Sometimes I think I noticed my mother started to almost live her life around the secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, and the secret almost started having power over her. Um, so it certainly kept her silent. Um, so I think I learned a lot about myself and how I wanted to live my life and to have a kind of emotional honesty when times when it really isn't fun. Right. You know? <laughs> Boy, I really don't want to admit that. I don't want to think that about myself. I don't want to have to deal with it. But um, my observation is to keep the slate as clean as you possibly can. And we humans are very messy. So we're always mopping up after ourselves. You know, it's we don't. uh, That's just our nature. So to the best of my ability, to be honest with myself and honest with others. Um, yeah, that's important. Did music in your life and being a composer, did it help you express some of this? And, oh my God. It- and, and you can read it in my book. Um, the book is composed, uh, there's a short story and that's about my life, you know, as a child, as a growing up, as a teenager, da, da, da. And then the alternative chapters are in my um, late 30s and 40s. Um, 
my journals. And they are all about my life in Philadelphia, life as as a parent, uh, then as a single parent, um, supporting us by composing. And a lot of these entries are about writing music. Okay. Also, some of it is reflecting back on my childhood. So you get these kind of two viewpoints as you go through that time period. But a lot of times I am talking about music that I'm writing that is about my childhood or about myself as I'm growing in my understanding as a woman um, and as a mother. Um, So there's always pieces that I'm writing. Uh, For instance, there is a piece called Dark Child Sings, and it's for four cellos. And it's really about that darkness in me that I really wanted to allow it to speak. Hmm. And in the beginning, it's kind of sorrowful, but towards the end, it's just like dancing around. Um, So, you know, I, I am a kind of composer that really creates out of an understanding of myself. And um, that's sort of my template. Um, And my hope is always is that if I can really speak truly about myself, if I really am heaving my heart into my mouth, really speaking my truth at that moment, that you as the listener or the reader, it will resonate with you. It may not be your life, but there's something that will speak to you personally. And that is always my hope as an artist. Oh, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. I had heard in an interview you did that you talked about the similarities of composing versus writing Mm -hmm. as an example, your book and how a song has to have a beginning, a middle and an end to be satisfying. And it needs to be satisfying to the listener, not just to the person who was inspired. So that's really fantastic. They go hand in hand. And also, you know, there was, I was thinking about this as well. There is a part of you that's very um, scientific and clinical. You know, you mm-hmm. map it out, you're thinking about the structure, but then there is a part that's intuitive. You know, you start to write in this direction and it's not that you have one or the other. It's that both of them are working together. Sometimes maybe one is leading mm-hmm. and the other one is following, but there is always a sense of, of organization and thoughtfulness, as well as just sort of inspiration. Okay. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So what are you doing today? Are you continuing (laughs) to write more literature and music? What are you, what are you doing? Well, first of all, I have a wonderful summer here. I'm only teaching two days a week, which is such a blessing. So I am writing music. Uh, Actually, I have a piece that I'm starting to write. I haven't quite started it yet. It's called Above Ground. So it's that sense that, you know, I really have put myself out into the world. I am really declared myself, um, both musically and in writing. And feeling a kind of strength in that and wanting to explore that in music. Um, I'm also um, writing a series of articles. I I think I'm really interested in aging and the creative, uh, what happens to the creative juices as you get older. And my feeling is that it's less intense. It's less about that, you know, writing music. And it's more like, I don't know, it seems like it's a sort of oozes all over, you know, and I think that's part of the writing and um, my interest in teaching and uh, now really for the music community, articulating how, what the experience of music is without using a lot of musical terms. 
Okay. You know, sharing the the personal experience rather than this sort of academic experience. So right. making um, it accessible, it sounds like. There are those of us who are out of the music, you know, are not trained classically, who don't know the lingo. So it sounds like you're making. Yeah, it then I don't go with the lingo. I just right. like uh, you draw we, people we in. You can find lots of other words. <laughs> right. No? right. That's wonderful. Yeah. Did writing your book give you more compassion and insight for your mother? Um. How did that go? I mean, yes, I mean, it was a very long decade struggle. And my mother just died uh, last November. She was 97 and seven days and nine days old. Okay. Wow. That's a wonderfully long life. And she had late onset Alzheimer's, which actually for her made her extremely sweet. Oh, Um, you know, sometimes very agitated and upset, but many times just incredibly sweet. And um, I think through all the work that I had done, particularly on forgiveness, um, because even into her 90s, she wasn't really able to feel like, you know, that this was really an issue. It shouldn't be an issue for me. That's sort of was her perspective. But I think what I loved about all that work is that I could be with her and I could be kind to her. It wasn't a restoration of that old infatuation I had as a child that I longed to hold on to, but I could be kind to her. I could be, you know, uh, she would pat me on the arm and she would say, so did you grow up in this town? (laughs) She said, me too. It's really nice to know you. And I said, yes, it's so nice to know. And that was you know, to be able to have that was really, you know, it was grace. It was such a blessing. Um, a new relationship. And I love that you seized that instead of painting it tragic. It's like, this is a wonderful yeah. uh, opportunity. Oh, it just felt so clean and um, nurturing. Um, yeah. Oh, that is lovely. That really is. Well, do you have any music close by? We, you read a little from your book. Do you have anything? No, I, I don't, but I can just pause us. What I will do is put a little on and record it with my ending, just a little bit. And then I would love to, in show notes, link back to some of your music that people can listen to. Yes, you can go very on much Spotify. It. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Good. Wonderful. I really thank you for sharing yourself with us in this way, both your music and your beautiful story. And the behind the music, as they would say on MTV. <laughs> so, Thank yeah. you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. Well, it was definitely my pleasure. And where do people connect with your, where is the best place people can connect with your music and your book? And well, you. for first of all, it's very easy. It's tinadavidson.com, which okay. is my website. You can go on Spotify and uh, or on Apple Music or wherever you listen. Wherever you listen to your broadcast. That's right. <laughs> Um, And then my book is on Amazon. It's Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. And I'll show you the cover. Beautiful. It actually has two covers. I like that. I don't think I have the paperback with me. I love both covers. Um, And where else? You know, on Facebook, you know, I have a professional page and on Instagram. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed it, feel free to leave a review. And if you've really, really enjoyed it, 
go ahead and subscribe, and I'll see you next week. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.